Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift that we remember this season, the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the peace that has been established between those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ and you. This morning, as we come into this passage, we pray that you will help us that we will learn how to live before you with our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, even as we strive to live faithfully in this world and deal with its temptations, deal with its call, deal with all that it offers, and yet find our delight and our joy in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word this morning. May it be your word that convicts. May it be your spirit that transforms. And may it be your name that is lifted up and glorified. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so we are going through today, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the latter half of the passage this week. Uh, you should have two things from coming in this morning. Uh, you have a chart in which you see that the same structure that we have been looking at throughout the entire book of Corinthians is present still in chapter 7. And also we have uh, blank Bibles of 1 Corinthians. And so if you need either one of those, uh, Jay's right there, and we'll be free to pass one along to you. So a blank Bible of 1 Corinthians 7, which is for you, and uh, a chart of the structure that is consistent through this section of Corinthians. On Friday night, we were driving back home from the church. Our boys had been to YF. Uh, Irene, myself, and two younger boys had been to our cell group. And I can't remember exactly the reason that this came up. But some of you may recall there was a peculiar announcement back in 1977 coming from the music world. And there was a smash hit that came out that let everyone know that short people got no reason. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason to live. It was a it rose on the charts all the way to number two. Randy Newman announced to the world that short people got no reason to live. Now, one thing that at the time was misunderstood, even as the song soared in popularity, was Newman was not actually talking about physically short people. He was talking about people who had short tempers and small minds. And so actually, uh, <laughs> I don't know why it came up on our ride back home, uh, but I played it for our boys, and they're like, he just dissed our entire ethnic. <laughs> 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 I was like, no, it's not actually about 
physically short people. It's about people with short tempers and short minds. But here in 1 Corinthians, whichever way that you would take this, what reason, first of all, do any of us have? What is the reason for any of you doing whatever you do? What is your purpose in life? What is it that motivates you? What is the meaning that you've committed your life to? And those of you who come to this church should have an answer to that. What is the chief end of humanity? Okay, so when I say, what is the chief end of humanity? Everyone in one voice is supposed to respond to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh my goodness, let's just do that. <laughs> what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so there is a purpose for every one of us. We have a reason for being. And that reason, as we're remembering through Christmas, has been restored. You could not glorify God, and you would not enjoy him forever if it were not for the coming of Jesus Christ. But then, how is it that we can do this? As we look at the troubles that plague our world, how is it that we can come to glorify God and enjoy him forever? How is it that we can live righteous lives before God? And the answer is the same, is that we as a people are learning to glorify God and join and enjoy him forever. The purpose, as we learn to live out the purpose that we have, it also becomes the solution to the problems that we experience. And this is exactly what Paul is writing about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is, in a sense, one of the most focused passages, exhorting God's people to do exactly that. And Paul puts it in uncompromising and explicit terms. Remember what we looked at at the beginning of chapter 7 last week. And Paul is dealing with the questions presented to him by the Corinthians, but he turns this question that is asked by the Corinthians in order to help him convey this message. And you can see that there is a progression. If you have been following with us as we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 all the way through here, there are these consistent sections that are addressing different issues in the Corinthian church. And yet, Paul is using these questions to set the church on a particular trajectory. And so when you, you can see that clearly in, in this way. If you were to come to me um, and ask me about the same question that is asked to Paul. And actually, we, we deal with this question many times when we have marriage counseling and, and other issues like this. And if you ask me the question, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Well, what's the theological answer to that? Well, God designed marriage, and he created that relation for the blessing of his people. And so it, 
it's a good thing, right? I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. But Paul gives an answer here that turns that on its head. And in fact, in terms of uh, not just how the Bible looks at it, but how Corinthian society would have looked at it, how our society would look at a question like this, it's something that is meant to stir us up and make us think. In ancient Corinth, uh, there were different schools of philosophy. Many of you probably heard about uh, different ones that existed at the time, but um, those who promoted an ascetic sort of lifestyle would have thought, yes, that denial is good because we want to live very disciplined lives. We want to live spiritual lives, and we want to learn to set aside the physical temptations and desires in order that we can uh, grow more in touch with who we are spiritually. Others, Epicureans, would have thought, oh, experience. And that's actually very much where our society is today, right? We want to maximize our experiences of all that this world has to offer. And our society invests that with even greater freight in the sense of your sexual identity is who you are. And we put such an emphasis on self-expression. But Paul here, in looking at this question, turns all these things on its head. And he says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And as we went through this passage last week, one of the things we see is that Paul makes this entire facet of our lives that we invest so much meaning into to serve a greater and higher purpose. You can see that as uh, we go through this passage, and even in this question of marriage, and whether a single person should be married, whether a married person stays married, and uh, dealing with all the different situations of whether the spouse is a believer or an unbeliever, if the unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage, and all this is turned and directed to the point of holiness. How do you live a holy life before God and holiness with a purpose that we see in verse 16? Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? C.S. Lewis was, uh, wrote at one point in terms of how we look at the priorities of this world. And I was just thinking, because uh, <laughs> I had to say it was like when I was preparing this message and I was behind all this week, and so I knew I didn't have much time. And yet, even as I was trying to get the message done, I couldn't help but like check the uh, scores from the football games that are going on because, I mean, you know, there's the playoff and, and all this stuff. And, and I don't even care about any of the teams involved because uh, I'm not connected in any way to any of them. And yet, there's just like so much weight our society places on that, right? Compare like all the hoopla over the college football playoff and how our society really celebrates and emphasizes that and the salvation of one soul. And the thing that C.S. Lewis wrote is all the affairs of this world are as nothing compared to the salvation of one soul. And here Paul 
turns us back to that priority. How do you live your lives? And even in this very uh, heavy matter of sexual relations, how do you look at that? And he says, here's the purpose of that. Can you live in a holy way that pleases God? And if you do so, might it result in the salvation of your spouse? And so this thing that we invest so much weight into, are we able to set all those things aside and consider the priorities of God? And so there's a way in which there's an uncompromising emphasis on the priorities that ought to govern our lives. Is your life directed toward glorifying God and enjoying Him forever and helping others to see the importance of that also? And so then as we continue through chapter 7 today, I want you to keep in mind two implications of what Paul's teaching here of this the sacrifice of this area of your life, your hopes for marriage, of that relationship, and of the desires and satisfaction of the desires that come alongside that, the sacrifice of those things and how Paul sets that and says, if you could give all that up, and that would lead to the salvation of one person, it would be worth it. Two implications of what Paul says here. First, if Paul is teaching us under the inspiration of the Spirit to set aside something that God has designed and is an integral part of His purpose for us. If He has told us to set that or sacrifice that for something else, that something else is of absolute overriding importance. There is something else that has absolute overriding importance. And the second thing that goes along with that is that whatever it is that you and I would sacrifice in order to accomplish this purpose must be given back to us. And the reason is that God has designed it for us. When we sacrifice and give these things up to the Lord, they are transformed into what they ought to be so that we might enjoy them to their fullest extent. No one gives up anything that God desires us to have without the assurance that when we receive them back, and we will, it will be so transformed in such a wonderful way that we will not feel that sacrifice of all or desire to have it in the way in which we originally could have attained it. Let me give an example. The feeling of acceptance. How important is that to, to you and I? I mean, aren't we always laboring to have that sense of acceptance within our communities, within our families, within the circles that we live in? We want to feel that those around us esteem us and value us. And so what kind of effect that does that have on us? If I'm someone who, uh, you know, I'm in a number of social circles in this number of social circles in this church. And so I pay attention. What is it that people 
within the circle value? Is there a certain way that they dress? I mean, why is it that we have the fashions that we do in fashions? I mean, you know, after you've lived several decades, you notice that fashions change. And as fashions change, the way everyone dresses changes. So it's not that everyone thought, oh, this is the way that I particularly look good. We're very affected by how the people around us dress, how they talk, the kind of things that they value, the kind of activities that they engage in. And if I'm running around in circles that value certain types of activities or value certain ways of dressing yourself, then I'll start to conform to that. And why is it that I do that? It's because I want the people around me to think that, oh, Hans is really with it. He looks really cool. We like him. He's a valued member of this community. And so we work, in a sense, to conform ourselves to some kind of arbitrary standard. Now, what happens when we give that up to God? When we give that up to God, instead of striving to conform ourselves to some arbitrary standard, we become the embodiment of what God sees as worthwhile and beautiful and valuable. We become the kind of people that have eternal significance and beauty. <clears throat> and we are no longer striving to conform ourselves to something that this world has just all of a sudden held up because uh, the latest pop star or the latest uh, actor has started to adopt a certain way of dress. But instead, we have become the kind of thing that is excellent, praiseworthy, true, noble, admirable. We become the kind of people that the Lord of all the universe, the one who has perfect judgment, the one being whose opinion truly matters, looks upon and says, I am satisfied. I take delight in my servant. She is beautiful. And all those who God is bringing into this new community will likewise look upon you and see the beauty and love not the way that you are portraying yourself, but who you really are. And so taking that as an example, when we give up those desires to be esteemed and accepted in the circles of this world and we give them to God and allow him to do his work in us, when he gives it back to us, when we are transformed into his image, when we are together in the kingdom of God, do you see how you enjoy that same thing that you've longed for here on earth? but we'll have in a greater and truer way. And it's that perspective, no longer living in order to try to attain status in this world, and instead focusing our thoughts, our minds, and our attention upon God that leads us to become content in every circumstance. And we can see that particularly at the beginning of the passage that we have today. And Paul picks two radical uh, contexts in which to show this 
to go along with the idea that we've already had in marriage. And so if this idea of our marriage and sexuality are given up to God, what are some other areas that Paul uses to show the absolute commitment that we are to have? Verse 17, only let each person live the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Okay, wherever God has put you, are you content in the situation that he has given you to live faithfully? Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And you'll remember that for the Jewish people, that had not always been the case, right? Because God had given that sign to them as a physical mark of, this is how you show you belong to my community, my people. And so Abraham had received that covenant of circumcision and all the male infants had been circumcised in order to show that they belong to that covenant. And you'll remember like uh, interesting circumstance once where uh, Moses, when he was called to lead God's people and he had married Zipporah and he had not circumcised his child, but the angel of the Lord met him and was going to slay him before Zipporah threw the foreskin before Moses and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so it wasn't a negligible thing in the Old Testament, but now in this time, because there was a new people of God, how are the people a people of God? No longer was it ethnic Israel that was particularly the people of God but rather those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And so uh, there had been a lot of controversy in the early church, and you can read about it in the book of Acts, where there were parties within the church that were saying, those who have now come to God should also become circumcised. And Barnabas and Paul had argued against that. And here he says, you know, in terms of how other people will view you, and perhaps within the circle of the church, you would be more accepted if you adopted this mark that, you know, at that time, the majority of the church was Jewish. If you adopt this mark, perhaps they'll esteem you more highly. And yet that should not be your focus, not how other people would view you. And on the flip side, in Greek society, the Greeks actually abhorred and would discriminate against people who were circumcised. And so some Jews at the time had adopted the practice of trying to reverse that circumcision. And he says, don't pay any attention to that either. If you were circumcised, remain circumcised. If you were not circumcised, remain uncircumcised. Don't pay attention to these outward marks that might be so important to the culture around you, but have no meaning before God. And then perhaps one that's easier for us to see the significance of it, but now he takes the issue of slavery. If you were a bondservant, and doesn't it just feel wrong that Paul is saying that? Don't seek to be free. Just continue. Of course, he says, if the opportunity is there, avail yourself of it. But don't devote extra attention to your freedom. Now, it's true that slavery in the time of Paul in those biblical times is not the kind of ethnically based slavery that we have today. And perhaps there would be a different way of looking at that institution 
But just take that. If you were a bondservant to someone else, not to pay any particular special effort to be free. Verse 21, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when, he, when called is a slave of Christ. And then look here at verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. What is he talking about here? You see how he's, he's trying to reframe how the Corinthians are looking at this institution. You were bought with a price. Do not be, what if you're already a slave? And what he's pointing out here is if you are a slave in this world, you're already free in Jesus Christ. But don't become a slave of man. Now, you are a slave of man in this circumstance uh, in a particular way, right? Within the eyes of the world, within the social uh, construct, within the uh, social relationships that existed there, you would be a slave of someone else, but not spiritually. Your devotion, your love was to be given to Jesus Christ. And if you were free and you had no one who could command you what to do, you could become a slave in this sense, as many of us are, right? Because there's certain ways that you have to act. There are certain things that you have to do. Uh, this last week, I found out about uh, the circumstance of one of my friends. And I think uh, one of the things that you can see very clearly in our culture, how it tries to exert this hold upon you. And so she, um, was a teacher working in the public school system in Chicago. And uh, one of the things that the school system there was forcing everyone to do is, uh, Tobai, can you help me out for a second? Can you just stand right here in the front? Stand up straight, just for two seconds. <laughs> oh, that is a nasty look. Tobai, please. No? Okay. <laughs> okay, I got a five-year-old, right? So she teaches five-year-old kids, really little kids. And as part of the, uh, I, I don't know, it's not part, well, I think it's part of the curriculum, but what they need to do within the school system is these kindergarten teachers with these five-year-olds have to explore this idea of sexuality with them and, this, and particularly transgenderism. And they have to ask them, you know, if you feel like you are a gender that's different than what you are, you know, you need to embrace that. And so this was something that with her Christian convictions was very difficult. And so she resigned. So she's trained her life to be in the public school system. But do you see how the world is starting to demand that we compromise? It's not actually starting. It always has. And it says, if you want to prosper in our way, you have to live according to our values, whatever they may turn to be. What are you and I going to do when that demand to become a slave of the world comes to us? You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men.
So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. What is the relative priority that you place on these things in this world? How badly do you need to have success? What are you living for? Is marriage something that you have to have, that you would compromise your faith in order to attain it? Is worldly prosperity, freedom, wealth, position, something that you will allow the world to use to enslave you to its values and deny the one who bought you at a price. And as we continue through chapter 7, we turn back again, and so we see we're still dealing with this question, and this question of sexual relations and marriage. And Paul is taking this principle. To what extent is this principle of glorifying God, enjoying Him forever, the absolute, uncompromised priority in your life? And so he says in verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. <clears throat> and I just want to point out um, what's going on here in this passage in that uh, we know that the church experienced a very great deal of persecution in the years following Paul's letter. Many people went to jail, many people were persecuted, many people were killed. And so those who had families obviously went through a period of greater suffering. And so when he says in verse 26, I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And yet here he is pointing to a situation in which he knew persecution was coming. You could see the persecution coming. It was already existing and it was growing. And yet it was a, a present distress that pointed to a continuing situation. Look at verses 30 and 31 or starting with verse 29. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealing with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. And so you go from a temporary situation to a, in a sense, continuing condition, because that is the situation in which we now live. We live in a world whose present form is passing away. And so this is something that I'm struggling with in our own family. I'm struggling with myself. What are my priorities? What is it that I want to achieve in this world? And when I look at those ambitions, are they ambitions connected with how this world sees me, how you see me, or am I seeking to please God? I'll give you another kind of practical application that I think touches many of us. Many of you are currently in school, uh, some of you studying very hard, some of you studying not so hard. What is it that you're devoting all those things to? 
What is it that you're devoting that money, or perhaps the money of your parents, your time, your effort? What are the reasons that you study? What are the reasons that you go to school? And for those of you who are parents, why do you send your children to school? What is it that you're hoping for from them? Well, uh, my wife and I are educating our children through a classical model of education. Uh, the classical model of education follows what's called a trivium, it's a particular approach to education, it's a systematic kind of study. And classical education has these two values, it's, it's meant in order that you study, in order that you can live a virtuous, what Aristotle called a virtuous life. You study so that you know how to think, and you can discern right and wrong, and then live in a way in accordance to what is right. Mortimer Adler points this importance of education. As you study in this way systematically, it allows you to join in the great conversation of minds that go down through all the ages. And so you're able to participate and understand and grow in the knowledge of the world. And so education has that purpose. You understand how the world functions and you are able to think clearly, discern right and wrong, and live in accordance with virtue. One of the things that I think has kind of brought education and schooling to people's minds recently is actually the conflict that we have going on in the Middle East. The Ivy League is perhaps the one of the most, perhaps the most prestigious groupings of schools in the world. Harvard, perhaps one of the most well-known of uh, the colleges in the Ivy League. This week, the U.S. Department of Education added Harvard to the list of universities and school districts that are being investigated over alleged incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And even as we talk about this, of course, we want to add a caution that we ought to be concerned with the suffering of the Palestinian people and the suffering of the Jewish people. But you would think that it doesn't take a great deal of discernment and perceptiveness to see that a terrorist organization that has made no secret of its genocidal intent, that it clearly spelled out in its founding covenant in 1988 and has just slaughtered civilians in a sneak attack is not an organization that you ought to support. Carrying out atrocities, including cutting the throats of young children, taking civilians hostage, rape, murder, and displaying the violated bodies in disgusting ways. And many of you probably are aware that Harvard had student groups that right after that incident came out in support of Hamas. Harvard's vision, I looked it up on the web, Harvard College sets the standard for residential liberal arts and sciences education. We have committed to creating and sustaining the conditions that enable all Harvard College students to experience an unparalleled educational journey that is intellectually, socially, and personally transformative. Well, they're certainly being transformed, but I would ask into what? 
How's that going, Harvard? If that's the direction you're going, I have no desire to send my children to your educational institution. What is it that we're after? Are we striving to grow in wisdom through our education? To become people who are clear thinkers? Is it the desire to honor God as we learn to develop and express the talents and the abilities that he's given us, and that we use them to express God's glory and show our delight and enjoyment of him? Or is our purpose in education an easy life, a life of prestige, that name, Harvard, I went to Harvard, graduated class of whatever. What is your purpose? What is it that you want from this world? Revelation chapter 17 is a passage that, in a sense, gives a very similar picture to what Paul is talking about here, except on the other side. And it gives it in a kind of a metaphor of a woman, the great prostitute, clothed in purple robes, stained with the blood of the saints, and she's riding this beast. And, and what that passage communicates is this idea of the person the world that is the people who are trying to live according to the values of this world. And they're trying to, in a sense, ride the beast for the time, enjoy the prosperity of what the world can give. And if you read Revelation chapter 17, the end result of that woman who is riding the beast is the beast turns and devours her. And can't you see that going on all over our culture today? I mean, there'll be someone who's raised up, you know, they're a famous actor or actress. But then the values in the system of this world change. And so many of you remember the Me Too movement that came out a number of years ago. And where did many of the abuses happen? Hollywood, right? There were all sorts of actors and actresses who were taken down through that movement. And the values and the kind of things that we call justice in this world are constantly changing. And if your goal is to ride that crest, to ride that beast, what God tells you, there's a good chance that beast is going to turn and gobble you up. What are you living your life for? What are you committing and devoting your energies towards, the talents that God has given you? You were bought with a price. Don't become a slave of this world. We celebrate at Christmas time the coming of a Savior, one who gave himself for us, that we no longer should free the things of this world, but rather that we could live before God and have the kind of security of knowing that the Lord of the universe has given us eternal life. And so don't be afraid then to give this life up for God. Let's close with prayer. Father God, we are anxious about a great many things. And the concerns of this world have a great hold upon my heart. And yet, Lord, you've called me to be free in Jesus Christ. And I have the assurance that the work that was begun in me will be brought to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. But Lord, you've called us now 
in this church at this time to no longer live for the passing, transitory, unstable gifts of this present age, but to set our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who will no doubt return to us every sacrifice that is given to him. He has said, if you give a cup of water to the least of these, my servant, I will remember. Help us live to glorify and honor the one who loves us and has given himself for us and established us and who will bring this world one day to an end and bring all things under his feet. Help us to have the wisdom to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Before we have communion this morning, um, I think we have a testimony. Uh, oh, hi, Alice. And so some of you are here over our Thanksgiving service to see Alice baptized. A great joy for me and a great pleasure for all of us as Alice comes to give her testimony. Please welcome Alice. Uh, hi guys, I'm Alice. I'm in ACF and I guess I will share my testimony. Uh, so I didn't grow up in the church. I just remember coming for the big events for free food every once in a while as a kid, but I didn't really know what God or religion was. Around sixth to seventh grade, my mom had started coming to PCC and asked me to check out YF, and I was like, sure, I guess. I think I went once and I liked it, but I didn't know it was a weekly thing. So for a while, I hadn't continued going. But for, after some time again, uh, I went and I started going pretty consistently. And at YF, I would just listen and I guess try to absorb everything. I don't remember being too doubtful, and at some point early on, I started to believe the things being taught and everything I heard. I made some friends and started to look forward to coming each Friday, and it was a nice break from school and other things. In YF, I felt kindness and heard wisdom from leaders and others around me, and I hadn't really been in a community like it before, and I really enjoyed it. Over the years in YF, I started um, enjoying continuing going to YF and I appreciated each leader that had come and gone and I'm thankful that so many people spent time on us when they could have been doing other things on a Friday night. During my time in YF I learned what it meant to be a sinner and what sin was and I understood that I was a sinner. I would try to be better but would still fall short but people people in the church and God were always graceful to me. Sometime in high school, Pastor Adam made me follow him to the office and he handed me the baptism form. He was like, I think you're ready. And I was like, okay, I guess. And I think I started considering baptism with an open heart, but when the pandemic hit, I kept making excuses and didn't really want to go through with it. But sometime this summer or early in the school year, I came across an Instagram reel about a girl getting baptized. She had shared how she got baptized and mentioned that God had been so good to her and it was her turn to do something for him. I was like, rats, I guess she has a point. So yeah, I decided to do the same and here I am now in ACF. And being in ACF has been encouraging, being around other Christians in college 
seeing how other people my age strive to understand more and be closer to God even outside of large groups on Fridays and Sunday services. As I continue to learn and grow, I'm thankful for the fellowship I had in YF and now in ECF, always encouraging and pushing me. And I can continue to see God and his love around me always. And I'm thankful that he led me to PCC all those years ago. Let's pray together for Alice. Father God, we thank you for this precious daughter whom you love, whom you have called to be your child. We thank you, Lord, that she has taken this step to publicly declare that Jesus Christ is her Savior and her Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help her now to live faithfully before you, that you would take pleasure in the works of your servant, and that one day she would look with her eyes upon the one whom she did not know she desired in the way that she does and find her greatest joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done in her life. And we pray, Lord, for ourselves as a community, that we would be a community that would also point Alice to the greatness and glory of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Alice. So we have communion this Sunday, and one of the things that we had started to do, but I kept forgetting, was that we now have uh, the not prepackaged elements also, and so you have that choice of either uh, taking the prepackaged elements or not. But also we have the bread that we break, and that is a visible symbol, of course, of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So if I can get this glove on. It's, it's tight. <laughs> it's kind of on. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but we have the bread which symbolizes the body of Christ. And we break the bread in order to show that Christ's body is broken for us. And this is also a reminder that he is the one who sustains us. And so there's many images that we have throughout the scripture. One of the most powerful is that of the Exodus and the manna that is given by God that sustained the Israelites throughout their wilderness journeys. And in the like way, the body of Christ is broken for us. And we are to be sustained and live upon him, live upon God, who is invisible and yet is the one who sustains us throughout our lives in order that we can live faithfully before him. And so if I can ask our servers to come forward, um, take some time to pray. We welcome all of you who are baptized to partake in communion with us. And you can either take uh, the uh, prepackaged, which also has the cup, or the, um, the bread.
please rise as we take communion. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 the instructions that Paul gave us concerning the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake in communion together. Thank you. You may be seated. Please rise for the song of response. We will be singing uh, the song that was introduced today again, O Come All You Unfaithful.
with this testimony given so many years ago by John the Baptist. And I pray that you would remember the message that he came to bear, even as we consider and remember this time of Christmas. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Children of God, go in peace. <laughs>